Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of First Bite. Just a friendly reminder that if you'd like to earn credit for this episode, complete the accompanying audio course registered for ASHA CEUs on speechtherapypd.com. And, you know, I love a good coupon. Don't forget to use the new coupon code BITE21 to get $20 off your registration fee. So check out speechtherapypd.com, register for an annual subscription, and don't forget to use BITE21 for your $20 off. So happy listening, happy growing, and y'all, from the bottom of our hearts, with everybody behind First Bite, thank you so much for being part of this journey. Don't forget, check us out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram World and at First Bite on Facebook. Happy learning, y'all. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join you. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody. Welcome back from a fabulous July break. I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit more rested and honestly, a little bit more peaceful because y'all, June was kind of hectic celebrating Dysphagia Awareness Month. So (laughs) if you haven't done so already, go check out the mini series Understanding Dysphagia that I hosted. And it's also presented by speechtherapypd.com for 0.1 ASHA CEUs per episode. But I digress. So let's get back to this. On the break, I did a little bit of soul searching to figure out where I need to place my energies. And it got me thinking about the cycles of professional life. Every time I undertake a new idea, there is a process that includes seeking to understand the idea from various sides, researching stakeholder buy-in, and complete and utter immersion into the topic so that I can really grasp a beginning, a middle, and an end. And most importantly, recognition of who the subject matter experts are in that topic and making an ethical choice to seek them and their wisdom out. Then and only then, hours, days, weeks, months, and years later, then I'm ready to bring that idea to fruition. Also, there's typically a fair bit of prayers, tears, laughter, mimosas, black coffee, and computer clashes crashes along the way because life. But y'all, it's a cycle I put on repeat. 
But shouldn't that professional cycle ring true for all the undertakings and transitions and projects we pursue in our professional career? I hope so. And that's, that's what we're talking about today, the ethics of making a career change, or at least the ethics of making a change within our respective scope of practices. Say, for example, a swap from adults to pediatrics, or peds to adults, or peds in a school setting to transitioning to peds in a home health setting. All of that is a professional ethical cycle and change. And y'all, today's guest is here for this, and she's a very, very dear friend and a fellow Old Dominion University Lady Monarch, the one and only Renee Garrett, MSED, CCC, SLP, CBIS. I promise we'll translate that. Y'all, I love this woman, so let me brag on her because Lord knows she won't brag on herself. Renee is the current past president of the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, and that's kind of how we got to knowing each other, was from a convention several years back and through CSAP, the Council for State Association Presidents, and she is a phenomenal acute care SLP uh, Navy wife. Oh, I am going to say go Army beat Navy, Renee, but I say this with love, and a fabulous mama, and basically she's an all-around firecracker of quit wit smiles that make her eyes glow. And she has on numerous occasions made me laugh so hard that I definitely mom peed a little bit, but like, I love her. And uh, pelvic floor therapy jokes aside, Renee, we got work to do. So hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Oh my gosh. You, you're amazing and phenomenal. And how is Virginia doing? (laughs) We survived tropical storm Elsa. So that's a blessing. Sunny today, so I'll take that. Nice, nice. We it rolled through yesterday morning, right when we had uh, Lane Riles from Control Bionics bringing in all of her high tech AAC stuff in the middle of the tropical storm, and I was like, "Oh God, please don't break the twenty thousand dollar eye gaze device. That would not be good." No, <laughs> so, no. We did five tornado warnings in two hours, but luckily I, I haven't seen or heard of any damage. So that's again another. Another good thing I'll take all day long. Yes. Oh, my God. Y'all got way more sucker punch than we did. We just had rain. Ooh, no. no. Summer in the South. That sums that up, right? Right. In a given day. <laughs> yes. Four yes. seasons of one day in Virginia. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. So talk to me. One tell. Can you tell everybody what does CBIS stand for? Because nobody knows what that means. Certified Brain Injury Specialist. So what is that and how did you get that? So when I worked in inpatient rehab, I decided to pursue the certification because the majority of my caseload were patients with TBI. And I just felt like it was a good thing to have as a marketable skill, but also to do that studying and research and have the knowledge of statistics for that population. And so you study really hard, you take a test and I, didn't think the test would be as challenging as it was. You can take it, I think, twice, but you have to wait a gap if you don't pass the first time, and you have to have 80% correct. Being a little bit of an overachiever, I'm used to getting 95s to 100s, and so for me, I nailed it right at 80%. <laughs> That's how difficult it was. <laughs> so we, we, um, we have to maintain CEUs for that certification each year maintain our good standing. So nice. That's see, I want to, I want to one day sit for the BCSS exam, but I suck at standardized testing. I distinctly remember taking the praxis there on campus at ODU and walking out and barfing in a bush. (laughs) Probably what I would do if I went for board recognition. Yes, I'm like I'm like I don't I don't think I'm ready for the BCSSS. I like my my meals where they stay in my stomach, and so like yeah, no. Okay, all right. So you and I are talking about a heavy topic today, and it's the ethics of it's the ethics of maintaining within our scope of practice, and. And, and over the course of your career, your scope of practice could change because just like you gave the example, I mean, you can pursue advanced certifications and, and that would 
change your scope of practice. I mean, I remember I started out in Virginia over there in Gloucester County doing assistant work and then transitioned to inpatient when I finished my master's, but I did adults. And then when I came here to treat home health peds, I had to big time beef up and change my coursework in order to make that ethical transition. So y'all, that's the framework for everything that we're, we're covering today. Um, and that's, that's a lot, but you didn't start out with a career plan to be an SLP. So can you kind of give us the backstory of how you got into this? So when I was 25 years old, my dad had a stroke after surgery and wound up on some pretty heavy dose blood thinners that weren't monitored the same way that we monitor them now as far as the blood work goes. And he had a brain hemorrhage after his initial blockage with this stroke and wound up with aphasia, dysphagia, right side hemiplegia. Um, He was in inpatient rehab for about three months, which is almost unheard of these days. Then he did about probably six weeks of home health and about six more months of outpatient therapy just to be able to get him to walk with a cane. So he was 48 at the time, very, very impaired, unable to return to his work. And I had never heard of a speech language pathologist. And they were pretty, you know, with aphasia, of course, very integral in his rehabilitation process. And so Fast forward about 10 years, I had this um, brilliant idea to return to graduate school and pursue this career. So now I'm year starting year 12, which is crazy. It's gone by so quickly. And I started in acute or in um, inpatient rehab and was fortunate in that we had the opportunity to do some extra coverage when our outpatient therapist was on vacation or out sick or what have you. So I got experience in the outpatient setting. And then we also had an uh, LTAC, a long-term acute care floor that was a separate entity, but we worked for the same parent company. So we were allowed to also cover up there and learn the ropes in that arena, which definitely prepared me for my transition to acute care because otherwise I think I probably would have drowned on day one. (laughs) Because, you know, we think of the medical part as being I think a a pretty linear thing and it's definitely not even when you're going from one hospital to another, the, just the, the whole clientele, the culture of the hospitals are different. The personalities of the hospitals are different. And that, that's not even what we're really talking about today. It's just um, interesting to think about how different those places can be from one entity to another. Yeah, that's, and that's, and, but that is, it's interesting to me. Because I was like, I want to be an acute care therapist. I want to be an acute care therapist. And I did it at a tiny rural country hospital where it was compassionate and everybody knew everybody. And I mean, you witnessed HIPAA violations daily, but that's, I mean, everybody was everybody's mother, uncle. And I remember when we got a new hospitalist and they were like, so this is illegal. you know, reining it all in and making us better. But like that, it's a culture, but that also kind of drives and dictates care as well. So that's, that's key to know. Okay. So if you're listening and you want to make a transition, that's a huge part, a huge, huge part of the job is knowing how to navigate those social pragmatic things too. But Let's let's go into like the nitty gritty. If we're looking at standards to be considered competent for evaluation and treatments of whether it be like a paid client or a student or a patient in settings that are different from where you're currently working or where you previously worked, like say you worked in one place and then took off for like maternity leave or a sabbatical and then want to go back to work in a different setting. What, what are some of those ethical standards we need to consider? Well, so when I actually um, initially wrote this talk, I talked about the ASHA Code of Ethics and what the preamble says as far as the highest standards of integrity and ethical principles being vital to the responsible discharge of obligations by not only speech, but also audiologists, scientists who work in our field, educators, clinicians. Of course, you know, that's on the ASHA website if anyone wants to peruse that. Um, and it also has the standards 
from state to state, we in Virginia have a standard that has prohibited conduct. So it talks about before we had universal licensure, if you're licensed to work in the schools, you're licensed to work in the schools. You're not, you need to get a different license at the time to work in a setting that's outside of the public school setting. So that was a little bit different than I think some other states. But we also in Virginia have a statute about unprofessional conduct. And those things are incompetence or negligence in the practice of the profession, failure to refer a client to an appropriate health care practitioner when there's evidence of an impairment for which assessment, evaluation, care, or treatment might be necessary. And I think the most important one is the inability to practice with skill and safety. So when we are looking at defining ethics, those are the moral principles governing person's behavior conducting an activity. There's a lot of different definitions for ethics, and I think probably the best one for me was the rules of conduct recognized in a respect to a particular class of human actions or a particular group or culture. You know, of course, the dictionary definitions are different, but they basically all say the same as far as the semantics are different, but they are saying the same thing. You have an, a responsibility to respect rightness and wrongness of certain actions and goodness and badness of the motives that those actions, you know, ultimately end up in. And so we're we're looking at us as SLPs, you know, we're always dealing with outcomes. What's the measure of improvement for the patient, the client, the child? Um, We're working towards always using evidence-based practice or hopefully already there because I know some people still do some things that aren't necessarily evidence-based. Not speech motor exercises, rawr. Yes, continue, sorry. <laughs> and so when we're looking at treatment principles and methodology, what did we do to improve the patient or client's or child's communication, swallowing, or cognitive skills? Well, if you don't really know what the evidence-based practice is, are you being ethical and are you fostering those outcomes that are desirable that we want to see? Because if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, how are you going to affect that change? And an example of that would be for like for me in acute care, we get a ton of clinical swallow evaluation orders from physicians. Sometimes they do them a little preemptively. And I'll give you an example. We get a lot from the emergency room of patients that have come in who are completely unconscious, unresponsive, obtunded, whatever word you want to use. They're not awake and alert and certainly can't follow directions. And they put in for a stat swallow eval. And I'm like, um, not sure what you thought I would be able to do besides what you already tried to do because they're not awake. So that would be my, my first example. Can you do a modified barium swallow on them? No, they have to be awake. <laughs> not I just going to throw the barium in. Yeah, no, no, no. I tell the boys, pick a hole that's going in if they give me the business about not eating dinner. That's what the line you need to tell the physician. All right, pick a hole. Which hole am I putting it in? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and so then it becomes, you know, if you do the clinical swallowing evaluation, what would lead you to want to do an instrumental and why? Um, And what symptoms at bedside possibly indicate what physiology? And I think that's a part that a lot of people miss because they come in from a setting where they are, say, like, and I'm not saying all skilled nursing facility or long-term care facility SLPs are like this, but I know the the two that I have most recently worked with are like, oh, it's, I'm completely comfortable in ICU. It's, it's the same, but yet when they read this person had a stroke in the brainstem with medullary involvement and they put them on a diet at the bedside without any instrumentation, I'm just like, Um, so that's a place where you might want to know the neuroanatomy and know that the physiology may impair their swallowing and you have to, that that's just jump straight to instrumental exam. But again, it's, it's lack of knowledge, lack of seeking out information as far as evidence-based practice on their part and just kind of going with what they've always done. And so you can't, you know, even me being in acute care for the last eight years, I can't even do that myself. And I'm not completely comfortable in the ICU. I don't think you should be. It's sort of like being afraid of your parents a little bit. You should always have that <laughs> that healthy that healthy fear because things change so rapidly. And from one second to another, we could be looking at a completely different situation. And being completely comfortable means you're on autopilot, which can often 
from a safety standpoint, lead to a multitude of errors that can be prevented. Okay, so I have 400 different commentary and thoughts and expansions. One, y'all, in the home health pediatric world, you should always make sure that you thoroughly understand the etiology of the patient that you're treating. And I hear what you're saying. You're not getting the medical records. That's why we have to go pursue the medical records. Because before you do a clinical swallow evaluation in a home health setting, you need to ensure that you understand what it is that you're looking at. And if you come in and that patient's MPO at the G-tube, you probably should hold off on doing a clinical swallow eval until you see what the instrumental said as to why they were MPO with the G-tube first. So if you're considering transitioning from, say, schools and a pediatric clinic to home-based services, that, that whole concept of having, of recognizing that you don't know what you don't know, and this is why we have to pursue the appropriate evaluations, that all ties into the ASHA standards and your state license. And, and you said something in the beginning about the schools in Virginia where you have to have one license to work as an SLP in the public schools and you may not have to have your state license. That's the same thing in South Carolina. In South Carolina, you can have a certificate through the schools to be a speech pathologist in the schools. And you don't necessarily have to have your state license unless you're billing insurance. And if you're billing insurance, then you have to have your state license. Does that, does that make sense? Should I say that? Yes. Right? And we have universal licensure now in Virginia, so it's different. But the interesting part is I, the, when I looked up the standards of conduct, they have not been altered or amended to reflect that. So that standard of practice is still listed in the, in the guideline document. But, you know, in looking at, we talked about ethics, but also integrity. So, you know, when you're talking about integrity, you're talking about your own personal adherence to the moral and ethical principles and moral character, quality of being honest and moral uprightness. So, you know, there's a component when I say that people have switched settings and didn't take the time to research the evidence-based practice. We're so fortunate that we have so many websites with low-cost CEUs, the ability to get a subscription for an entire year and have all access to CEUs. And, you know, of course, conferences and things like that, but there's a lot of websites with free CEUs that are very good quality and things that I still work with. Well, ASHA does them for free. Right. And, and no, um, I'm not affiliated with, Passy Muir, but they do have some very good high quality things that help you understand the respiratory system and ways in which we have a role and then also ways in which maybe you should step back a little. Um, that was something that came up recently within Virginia about tracheal suctioning. And we were told to kind of pause that by our licensing board because our statutes are different than our neighboring states as far as what we do. And for me, I have never had a problem getting a respiratory therapist to come in for a treatment session or an evaluation with me if I had a concern about a patient and needing some suctioning or having someone stand by um, to do that. That's not, you know, oral suctioning. We can do that all day, but I've never had that issue personally. So Again, you need to know what your resources are, but also know what your state and even your practice setting may have some limitations on what you're allowed to do. And there's rules for a reason for, for the most part. Um, a lot of it is safety. Some of it's customer service in the healthcare world. That's such a big topic all the time. Constantly, we're trying to get our customer service scores up. I did have someone last week who said, oh, we have a VIP patient. That's a physician's mother. Um, I'm sorry, but all of our patients are VIP and we treat them the same. I, I don't, I think that for me was, it's an integrity check because it's like, why would you assume that because that's a physician's mother, I would treat her any different from the homeless person that I had last week on my case? Yes. Yes. That's inherent racism, sexism, and favoritism within the world of medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a soapbox for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we were looking at back at um, the COVID year, the pandemic, and we're still 
you know, dealing with the after effects of that with people getting laid off and having furloughs, any kind of family or personal changes. I know a lot of people were homeschooling or maybe had a parent that had to move in with them. A lot of people did change practice settings or seek extra employment, additional weekend holiday work kind of thing. And so when we're looking at the standards, again, looking at the competence to evaluate and treat those people is actually, remember that old, the CASA, CASA, ASHA stuff when we were becoming SLPs and we had to look at all those standards? Well, guess what? You say remember the old and that's like my Monday through Friday, but yes, yes, I now get that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And there's there's a lot of them and there's a lot of them for good reason. The standards, when they talk about knowledge outcomes, it's focusing on knowing what you're doing. The standard five, the skills outcomes, which deals with evaluation, intervention, interaction, and personal qualities are all listed in bold. Um, why is it listed in bold? Because it's important for you to know. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> yeah. So standard four, knowledge outcomes. It actually mentions demonstrating knowledge of standards of ethical conduct. Um, it, it talks about demonstrating current knowledge of the principles and methods of prevention, assessment, and intervention for a variety of disorders, and also taking into psychological, developmental, linguistic, and cultural correlates, as well as anatomical and physiological. We have a doctor that's famous for, he just puts PT, OT, and speech orders in on pretty much every patient he admits, and he put one in, um, this was a, a couple of years ago, we had a patient that had undergone bilateral BKA, bilateral above the knee amputation. And he wanted to get a mobility score and have PT walk the patient. This is someone who had was about 10 years post amputation and had never had prosthetics. So we were all kind of scratching our heads like, what? <laughs> For inpatient? Yeah. It was like, what? How, how are they, how are we going to get a mobility score on him? And, and, as a caveat, he also had a peg tube for about 10 years and he wanted to see if he could eat again. And I was like, well, <laughs> yeah. So again, knowing what you're dealing with, you know, I would love to think that I'm so great I could fix him, but you know, the chances of that are, are pretty slim to none. And in having that moral ethical integrity with the skill set to back it up is important because you have to go to the professional, the other professionals and say why. Sometimes it's not okay. You don't have to do an assessment on every order that you get because the patient's not, again, not appropriate or unable for whatever reason to participate. It's not okay to bill for that. It's not ethical to bill for that. Also, on that note, clinician safety. That's that that's that's a piece that has reared its ugly head as of late. If is it if there's a clinician safety issue, I remember when we would have um, violent criminals come in and they would be handcuffed down to the bed, and there was one that was um, a repeated molester and rapist, and clinician safety. I was dealing at that time um, with having just left my violent ex-husband and clinician safety for me, that does include my psychological side and that's oversharing, right? I mean, there was no physical danger. There was an officer standing there, everything, but clinician safety. So we had to get a different therapist to come in. And that was the ethical decision because I could not complete a competent eval while battling my internal trauma. And so that that's something that if you're in that situation or you have those case scenarios, you need to be able to convey that. It's not client-patient abandonment. That's clinician safe. Right. And the same applies to uh, family members because I have had the time where people will say, oh, well, my... My dad's coming in and um, I would prefer that I do the eval. And I'm like, I don't think you're supposed to do that. (laughs) We're not allowed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's no. Okay. I think that's kind of common sense, but you know. Yeah. But love blinds you. I mean, in truth. 
it, it can blind us um, <laughs> on so many different levels. Um, yes, but what if, what about for the folks that are out there that want to know what is the ethical best practice for when we're considering crossing practices in the field of speech pathology? Like say somebody is working in acute care adults and they want to go to pediatrics because, and that was big for me, like we had tiny humans and I needed a schedule that jived with working around tiny human schedule. Or what if someone is so done with working with tiny humans and wants to go to acute care adults? Like how do they ethically do that? Well, and I think some of the questions that I had listed for pediatric outpatient in particular, because that would be the one that I have probably the least knowledge besides school-based, how do you educate parents and caregivers or multicultural and linguistically diverse populations if you haven't dealt with that scenario before? I know in the hospital for us, if we have someone who has English is not their language, even if they speak a little bit or they just have a, a primary language that's not English, we are required to have an interpreter and we have our own system that we use. It's a computer-based system where we dial in and get an interpreter for that patient. So, you know, how would you handle that in pediatric outpatient? You would need to know that. I think that's a very important one. And what about the physiology for pediatric dysphagia, if that's where you're going to be focusing your practice? Because even though the anatomy is the same, the physiology is different. I don't, I don't have the knowledge of that. I couldn't go do that tomorrow. I would need to spend some time educating myself. Again, looking at CEU courses, because I've had patients come in um, the outpatient setting when I'm doing modified barium swallow studies and say, how many of these have you done? Or what is your background? How are you qualified to do this? And it, the first time that happened, I was like, oh, <laughs> but, you know, after, over time, you you understand where they're coming from. It's not a personal attack It's because they want the best care they want the best outcome and so it's it's I think it's a valid question I think it's appropriate to have the yes I have done 500 of these or um, this is my 25th or whatever it is but you can say but I have trained with this person or I have been shadowed by this person who provided me extra training or I took this course I think it's they don't need to know the name of the course necessarily but you can say I have the, the uh, education to back it up um, when you're looking at medically based, like acute care or inpatient rehab, our moderate to extensive knowledge of medically complex disease processes, man, because there's a lot of things. <laughs> and um, one of my big pet peeves right now is dialysis patients and kidney patients with kidney dysfunction, kidney failure being placed on honey thick liquids. That's a no. It's a no for me, dog. <laughs> Don't do it. But also um, things like we use a system called AMPAC for scoring that talks about does the patient understand what level of understanding would they have for a 10 to 15 minute presentation for just a regular conversation? Would they be able to manage things like finances and getting an appliance fixed on their own? There's about five questions and there's a, a scale of one to five we have to rate patients on. So having the knowledge to be able to do that because just like when I worked in inpatient rehab and we did the earth pie scores, they were one to seven. You couldn't be a seven and be completely independent if you wear glasses or a hearing aid because that's an assistive device. You would always be a six if you were at the top of your game, but you still had an assistive Wait, device. What was that test called? The earth pie? Are you talking about for yeah, inpatient pie. rehab? They, yeah. they just made me think of the FEM scores. Yes, it's the, basically the same thing. Okay, functional index measurement functional, functional independence measurement yep i was close mm. yeah you were but but see it also it's been a minute i couldn't ethically treat an adult right now for dysphagia because i've so hyper focused my continuing ed pursuits on the peds versions right and then on the skilled the skilled nursing side they went to pdpm and for billing and now they are getting ready to face a five percent cut from uh, medicare they're different in that the therapy minutes used to be designed by the rehab director, which would drive me insane. <laughs> and then they had service delivery models that were different too. They did concurrent, they did group, they did individual. 
I know a lot of that is out the window now, but it was just a couple of years ago they were still doing that. And then for us, we have billing codes that are listed on our access sheet when we go to put our charges in. And it, some of them are like aphasia assessment. And I have a coworker who will bill for that. But we don't own a standardized aphasia assessment and you're not administering it. So you can't bill for that because that's not what you did. You, you can bill for a speech language evaluation, but you can't bill for certain. So you, again, you need to know the, the terminology, the um, CMS guidelines for billing. You need to know that because it does vary from practice to practice on what you're actually going to be using. In a, you know, in an outpatient setting, you could bill for aphasia assessment all day long because you have them there and you have the time to administer them. A, a true aphasia assessment is going to take an hour to two hours to fully administer. Right. And then again, looking at school-based, autism is, of course, one of the most widely diagnosed things and, and treated things in the school system but other neurological disorders, what are the developmental norms, Medicare billing, IEPs, 504s, you know, that I know the, the nuts and bolts of the, the terminology, but I don't know how to go about doing any of that stuff. <laughs> so if I had to write an IEP, I'd be like, um, uh, who do I call? I, call- <laughs> I was like, Angie Neal, this is the point of contact I would call. She's a freaking brilliant school-based SLP, but that uh, would be my point of contact. <laughs> and, and then looking at home health, and I think this would be the same for you with pediatrics, is travel between setting. Is that, is that billable time? No. And, but you and know I've what? Heard, and I've heard Don't that it try is. try to do that. Nope, that is a hard no because it is not, not engaged in direct yeah, patient not care. In patient care, correct. So and there's then, more yeah. than just learning the meat and potatoes, like the disorder and the disease when you go to make a transition between different settings. You have to learn all of the paperwork piece. Like, that's, correct. yes. Okay, so in that light, where where do you go for guidance on goal writing and embedding current evidence-based treatment? Like how do you, because goal writing, I see a lot of people struggle with when they go from school writing to home health. So do you have like a preferred goal writing bank or a place that you would, what, what would you do? What friend would you phone? For me, because I've been doing what I do for quite a while, I have a, a smart phrase list that's in... <laughs> In the charting system, so like for aphasia goals, then I just pull up the smart phrase, it drops my goals, and then I can customize those to the patient. So it has about four or five goals that have, you know, auditory comprehension, word finding, may have some category naming, and some money management task. And if they're not there, they're not even close to there, then I can delete and just rewrite or, but it has the kind of meat and potatoes. And then for, same thing for dysphagia, I have dysphagia goals and it has the diet and you can of course customize that and I, I actually in acute care have found that if that I there was something really strange that happened I could reach out to a colleague and just say hey do you have a goal for this have you seen this before have you written this before and just kind of see if you know we go that way but I don't have a goal writing bank that I have ever used interesting. I didn't even think that that existed. (laughs) Maybe I need to search for that. The ADD ADHD combo. Once I find something that I like, I just save it in Microsoft Word. And so I have like this big bank of things in Microsoft Word, which just gave me an idea. If there was a way, I need to phone a friend because if there was a way that we had high quality evidence-based goals available for free for PFDs, I'm going to phone a friend because that's a really good freaking idea. When when I started with acute care, the documentation is completely different and our system was completely different. And the IPR that I came from wound up going to, we use what's called Epic um, and they had wound up going to Epic. But again, their, their templates for evaluation were completely different than the templates for evaluation in acute. Part of that is time because they do have more time with their patient and some time for documentation, whereas I'm running around like a crazy person all day trying to document on one person and get interrupted eight times to answer someone's question or answer a page or do a backflip. I don't know. It's 
it's some things are really crazy. And here's and here's where I, I want to go with that because again, being in acute care, and this can happen anywhere, but being prepared for emergent situations. Are you prepared to call a code? What happens when you call the code? Who do you call? Because that goes overhead, but it's not you that's saying it overhead. So what are the steps in the process there? What about a fire? What if you had to help evacuate for inclement weather? What if there's a security alert? We've had people come in the emergency room with guns before. Are you really going to be able to jump in on CPR if we have a um, catastrophic event? So again, those are things that if you're coming from the school, I don't think that most people in the school have to have CPR. I've never heard of that before, and I could be completely wrong. But if you There's have typically med- like a designated team, right? But if you're in the medical setting and something like like a like a mass shooting or something like that, if that were to happen, are you prepared to step in? Because if you're at work, your role is going to change very quickly. And we are in an area where we have five hospitals in the region where I'm at that are just my health system. And I've worked at all five and one is a very large trauma center with a heart hospital as well. So that's a whole, again, whole different ball game. And then just looking at the physical and like you said, clinician safety, there's some times where physically it's, it can be demanding if you have to assist with moving a patient. Um, if you I've been down in the radiology fluoro suite before with the radiology physician's assistant, and we've had to call a medical response team, and we're the only two in the room, and we got to get it going before the medical response team gets to us. Because again, that it, it's kind of it's scary to think that if you were coming from another setting, you're really not prepared for those things. So, I have a lot of folks that have shared they really want to get into the NICU, right? Or they really, they they're, they really want to do acute inpatient after they've done um, home health or outpatient. And one of the bits of advice that I find myself giving is it's, it's the heart piece. It's have you considered the impact of that setting on your heart? Because when you're making the ethical consideration to change from one setting to another setting, I mean, inpatient looks glamorous. I get it. Like it's, it's incredibly fast paced. It's adrenaline. It's that, right? However, if what you love about therapy is the bond with the patient, the long-term growth, the long-term relationship. And that's huge. I mean, home health, you're with a family for several weeks, several months, sometimes several years, and you get to see the long-term outcomes of intensive therapy. When you're working inpatient acute, they may only be there for what, 24 to 48 hours sometimes. And if, if that and with a NICU, I mean, yes, you may have long haulers that are there for, you know, three months because they were born so extremely premature, but you're also going to engage with more death. And that's, that is something that I will never forget when I was a CF and the nurses were like, well, they're already gray. And, you know, they, I can't remember how they phrased it. But it was like, you know, it's just going to be a matter of time, like maybe a couple of minutes. And I was like, what do you mean they're already gray? And they were like, well, they have the death mask. And I'm like, wait, what are we talking about? And naive little Michelle was just like, well, I cannot do this. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, and that's definitely, that's it's a consideration now too, and especially over the past year with the pandemic, because the death was constant and it was it really did it took a toll on everybody and we lost a lot of good nurses at our facility and a lot of people just decided that this they couldn't do it anymore and I had someone say oh well now we're seeing who the real nurses are because those are the ones who stuck it out dude we I could say some things that I I won't say but you know (laughs) we talked about this privately some of the things were not okay 
And you, you have, again, ethics and morals and integrity. You have the responsibility not only to your patients, but to yourself and your colleagues to say, I, this is not for me. I can't do this anymore. I need to, to take care of myself. And I think self-care is certainly, you know, a new buzzword that everyone's talking about all the time. But it's true. If you feel like you've got that burnout and you need to go find something else to do, then I think that's okay. But you, again, need to prepare yourself. And so some of the ways that we, when I was looking at this initially, gaining confidence, shadowing in a lot of places, you know, you haven't been able to do that because you couldn't go into other facilities we have just opened back up, so I have a couple of students who want to come shadow just to see if it's for them. But you can do that with other professionals as long as you go through the appropriate channels. Of course, CEUs are always a great way. And if you go into the job and you say, hey, listen, I, I really need further training. I want this. I want to be able to do it. But I know that I'm not there yet and I'm willing to learn. Then I think that speaks volumes, too, because I'm more likely to Embrace that person that says, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. I need to figure this out. And will you show me then for someone to come in and say, oh, I'm completely comfortable with all the things, even though this is week two of me working in a completely new setting. No, that's not okay. What is wrong with these people? You should not be comfortable on week two. Hell, I've been at this for how long? And I still get a patient. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that one. (laughs) Well, my radiology PA friend says, if you're going to be that cocky, you better have a skill set to back it up. (laughs) And again, you you need to know the regulations from your state agency that's your licensing board. You know, looks like the, the interstate compact stuff is on pause for a little bit until some more things are figured out as far as having every single state buy in. And so at this point, the state agency is still the one with the regulations and they do vary greatly from just from Maryland to Virginia. There's some things that people in Maryland can do that we cannot. And there's some things that we can do that they cannot. So you have to know what those are. And a lot of this, I think is it's assumed that you are pursuing your CF and getting your own license and you reviewed it. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily true for all people, but it is a responsibility that you should undertake because Otherwise, you, you're putting not only your patients in danger, but you're putting yourself in danger. You lose your license. I. So when you're when you're thinking of a swap, you need to make sure that you find not just a mentor, but a mentor that has the capabilities to be a sponsor. A mentor is an individual that will fill your cup and help you grow. A sponsor is someone who will fill your cup and help you grow when you're there with you. But then when you leave, they're going to sing your honest, joyful praises to those around. Because, I mean, we can all, you can pay for mentorship. You can volunteer for mentorship. um, And, you know, you can just say thank you for mentorship, right? And you can do the same for sponsorship. But really, truthfully, on this side, and I am by no means calling myself an expert. I know enough about PFD to be dangerous, and I am regularly pursuing more because there's no possible way that I can know what PFD looks like across the life continuum in every single setting. I don't work there, nor should I be. But my dream and my goal is to share the knowledge that I have so that it inspires the next generation of clinicians to come and do more and to come and to be better. And, and that's, that's the difference in my opinion between mentorship, mentorship and sponsorship. My God, I need an articulation therapist, but um, that's, that's the person that you want filling your cup. So when you're thinking about a career change, make sure that you don't find somebody who's going to help you grow, but they're still going to kind of keep their thumb on you because they don't want you to be better than them. That, that ain't right. And that's, and I see that because unfortunately our field's kind of competitive. I mean, you know, that that's an ugly truth. It's, just, it's valid. It's valid. 
It's valid. Oh, we may or may not be mean girls. Hmm. <laughs> not you and I, but like our field. It's known for that. Rawr. <laughs> let's, let's change that. <laughs> on, on part two of Renee and Michelle, let's invent <laughs> all of the things that we talk about on Friday night during wine hour. Um, yes. Also, those are wonderful hours. I do enjoy that with you immensely. <laughs> Again, I'm looking at the resources, you know, we're fortunate in that the state associations especially during COVID, I got a ton of emails from um, not just neighboring state associations, but even Midwestern and California, where they were offering associate or reciprocal fees for state association members to attend their conference virtually. And it was unbeknownst to me at the time, but a lot of those state conferences have that reciprocation for their regular in-person event. So that's a pretty cool thing to do because you can then also network and make connections with people that are in your same career path or your same practice setting who have that ability to be a mentor, or you can, you know, refer someone else who may need that mentorship to that person. Because, you know, being in a military community where I'm at, people are transient. They're constantly moving away and uh, moving back or going to a different state. And so that's a really lovely thing to be able to do. Um, and a lot of those state associations also offer low cost webinars. And by low cost, I mean, some of them are free and some of them are $25 and that's a tank of gas sort of, if you drive a normal car like me and not like a tank for carrying 17 kids. <laughs> so, you know, those are, those are some things and I'm not necessarily touting the state association and being a member, but there's some benefits to it in that. That's another way that you can look into um, how to find out what that best practice is and see if they can connect you with a mentor as well. And I'm not affiliated with any of these companies, but um, for AAC, a lot of the companies like Lingraphica have some programs and some annual things online that are, that are free offerings that you can use for CEUs. The University of Wisconsin Voice and Swallow Clinic's lecture series are free, and they have a variety of topics, and I've found them to be very, very good for my personal use. That's I've gotten some some pretty cool free CEUs from them, and, and I mentioned Passing Mirror before, and I'm sure there's a ton of others that I'm not even thinking about currently, but those were my picks that came to mind immediately that, again, I've used for my own personal use. One thing about the state associations when you're looking at transitioning between settings is that's the role of the VP of governmental affairs and clinical affairs to hyper-focus and I mean, different boards have different makeups. Those are just the two off the top of my head um, for South Carolina. And those are responsible for the um, those nitty-gritty documentation details, right? So case in point, here in South Carolina, for some unknown reason, our state early intervention system is not currently allowing or reimbursing co-treatments between OTPT speech and or the quote-unquote early interventionist, right? In any other professional setting, inpatient, outpatient, home health, LTEC, you're allowed to have co-treatment and overlap time. You need that for continuity of care. And, and that's been an ongoing issue because if I can't collaborate and I am barred from collaborating with my occupational therapist, but yet I am working on, um, cup drinking and transitioning to cup drinking, but we're having difficulty with core stability or neck posturing due to, I don't know, scoliosis or, um, spastic tone because of CP like case in points, right? And yet I can't engage with the OT for positioning because in a session, unless one of us acknowledges that we're not going to get paid, but yet then you have the ethical piece of where this is best practice, but yet the productivity piece that you're getting pressure from, you know, your upper management, that's a huge problem. And I say that because that's where you wouldn't know that that's an existing problem in that field that you're contemplating getting into unless you sought to understand this is where we take into account stakeholder buy-in. And I can tell you that 
our stage association, like we have a, 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 a website, right? But there's like a, like a membership wall where you have to be a member to get updates from the different VPs and the lobbyists. And that's an ongoing issue that's currently getting the kinks worked out of it. And that will be an update that will go out to our membership. And I mean, I'm sure the appropriate state associations will disseminate the information throughout. But if you're not currently working in that setting, you may not get it from that state association. But you're, if you're a member, then you have access behind the member wall to see. You see what I'm saying? And that's not something that ASHA can address because they don't have state level paid lobbyists. That's what your state association does. So it's another piece when you're making that ethical transition between that that's a viable resource. And I love the idea of a mentor within the state. I mean, the BCSS boards will give you a mentor, like if you, if you're applying for that. And if you're coming from one setting and say you've gotten into your dream setting, but yet you recognize, Hey, I still need growth. I mean, that's your person right now. I say that with, Eh. the first time you seek out mentorship may not be a good match. You may need to go back to the drawing board and seek mentorship from maybe a second, third, fourth, and fifth person. Um, and again, that's okay. It's I think it's more ethically responsible and demonstrates your own integrity for you to be able to say, okay, this is not for me. This isn't working. Thank you for everything, but I need to again, looking at, there's a variety of reasons why it couldn't work. You know, learning styles are different. And all kinds of things are a barrier or a plus and and all of that. Yes. Now, and my other thought is, what about seeking mentorship from an allied health professional or a member of the medical community? Because I'll be honest, when I first started, my chief hospitalist, he was my very first mentor during my CF year. When I was a speech teacher assistant or whatever technically it was called in Virginia, my first mentor was an early childhood special education uh, major diane postman she was she's a goddess she now works for early intervention in virginia like she retired from the ecse classroom and then went to work and she gives lectures everywhere she's brilliant but they were they were not slps so just because don't think that you have to stick within your own silo as an slp please remember to pursue mentorship from other professions as well, because that's what we're about. You want optimal patient outcomes, then you need to engage in interprofessional education to grow your capacity to engage in interprofessional practice. And that, that is where you have optimal patient outcomes and you truly have the capabilities to synthesize evidence-based information into practice. Dun, dun, dun. Those are a lot of words. And I got lucky in the first health system that I worked for. Um, the, the structure was different than where I'm at now in a positive way because when I covered on the LTAC, even if I wasn't seeing patients, we got to do things like respiratory rounds with the respiratory therapist. We got to see chest PT and act live action. We had a voice and TEP specialist that would come over from the regional hospital and or the big, the big, big hospital. We call it the big house. They come over from the big house and do TEP changes for our um, clients that had those. And that was really cool. I'd never seen that. I was like year two or three. And we also did wound care rounds, which is super, super gross, but super, super <laughs> important in acute care because now that they photograph the wounds and put it in the electronic medical record, if you accidentally click on that and you're not ready, you can't unsee it. So, but <laughs> the reason is, again, reason is important. It's important to our practice because when you're looking at patients with dysphagia who come in who also have wounds, there's reasons nutritionally for that that are preventable. So it, it all, it's, there's a lot of full circle moments like that, that again, if you don't know, you don't know, and you need to have that ability to have, like you said, cross mentors from other disciplines. It's, it's important. Um, we do rounds for cardiac specialty and we do rounds in ICU every day. And guess who the only person from the rehab team who's not doing them, the speech language pathologist, because our boss wants us to be as productive as possible. So she always sends 
herself or PT or OT. That's awful. Because, well, we're the only one in the hospital and they have six, five or six PTs there at all times and two to four OTs. So with me being the only person for the entire hospital, I really don't have time. And for me, it, it, I think it it definitely would give me some insight into more appropriate patients. But again, that's a topic for another day because I can go on and on about that forever. <laughs> <laughs> Friday night, why not, baby? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> oh my gosh, if you and I had a magic wand, the amount of things we could fix in the world. Uh, also, I would add a lot more glitter and plants, but you know, <laughs> I digress. Same, same, same. Okay. So I got one last recommendation for switching locations. You need to learn the culture of communication and deeper and more than just recognizing when there's like an actual language barrier and you need an interpreter. You need to learn how to understand the technical medical jargon or variations in medical jargon. You need to learn the alphabet soup medical abbreviations that go within the setting because different facilities have different approved uh, medical abbreviations. So if you're coming from one setting, HX might mean history, um, PMH might mean past medical history, and one facility may have their computer program autopiloted to one or the other, right? Th- those are subtle changes, but that could have profound outcomes. But also recognizing who does the parent caregiver, patient caregiver, patient counseling, and how do you get in on those conversations? Is that your responsibility to hold crucial conversations on NPO versus PO or transitions and diets? Who, who, who has that conversation? Is that a team? Is that also when you go from a non-high-risk environment to a high-risk environment, with respect to like, you know, mortality rates and, and those kind of things, your therapeutic presence and how you're going to deliver a message also needs to change. And that's at the deepest level because it's one thing to go from flashcard Arctic phenology to now you're the one saying, I'm so sorry, we're declining because of this um, degenerative aggressive disease. And that's a huge switch in conversations. So I do recommend that you focus on the culture of a conversation. I love um, crucial conversations. That's a great starting point. But being aware and growing your emotional intelligence for self-perception and how to hold those is so vitally important. Yeah, there's a whole series on counseling for SLPs as well. That's a CEU that you can do online. I did that years ago. Honestly, think it was lingua systems, but they're no longer lingua systems. But they had a really good um, counseling for SLPs, CEU. That was probably an hour or two. And it goes into those things about caregivers and um, family dynamics. And if it's, you know, sometimes caregivers aren't family. And it talked about that as well, the role of palliative care. And the role, the right of the patient to say no thank you, because we have that as well. And, um, you know, I have patients all the time that we can't safely recommend a diet, but yet they want to eat to maintain their quality of life. And they are not interested in an alternative feeding conduit, a, a tube. And so they have the right to say no. And we have the, uh, again, moral and in- integrity based principles that we need to have to support that and say yeah, I, okay, I see I see what you're saying and I will support you either way in whatever decision you make because ultimately it's not your decision. It's your responsibility to provide the information and education for the patient and their family to make the best decision. Yes, that would be my pop-up wanting an Arby's roast beef and cheddar cheese sandwich all the way <laughs> till the end. <laughs>
<laughs> so, yes. Also, if you did not get the extra roast beef and the extra cheese, he would send you back. <laughs> so, like, know the correct order, Mashed. <laughs> no, he didn't really send us back, but he'd be just, oh, okay. And then I would go back. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh, Renee, I freaking love you. I you love keep you. me sane. You bring me so much joy. Thank you for coming. Um, if, if folks want to learn more for you, if they have a specific question, um, how can they reach you? Renee.Garrett2019 at gmail.com. I don't currently have a website because I'm not that famous. Just shoot me an email. If you have a question, I would I'd love to engage and um, have further conversations about this. And I just think it's really important to, for us to maintain those, those principles for all these reasons that we've talked about. Yes. Yes. Um, everybody, as always, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody behind the scenes at First Bite, we would love it if you followed us on Instagram at First Bite Podcast and check out my new book, um, Chasing the Swallow, which is for sale on Amazon, also on Instagram at Chasing the Swallow, which be careful when you Google that. That I did not name that very well. <laughs> and then we don't forget, we also have a Facebook page for First Bite. Uh, as always, we really appreciate when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you're loving the book, make sure you leave a review on Amazon for the book. And don't forget that the book is most recently approved for 13 and a half continuing education hours through ASHA. That is 1.35 hours, which is basically almost half of the 30 hours that are required and i'm still kind of freaking in awe of that but um me too yeah that's amazing oh, man. that's do you know how many stretch marks i got right in that bloody thing <laughs> okay i digress but y'all have a lovely afternoon renee thank you much and um everybody we appreciate y'all have a good one feeding matters guide system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul be kind, and feed those babies.